You're listening to Soundwise Podcast, a show hosted by Alex in Serbia and Vlada in Poland. Each week we cover a different artist or band and engage in an open and spontaneous debate and discussion about specific parts of their discographies. Our goal is to expand our musical horizons and cover a great range of artists and styles. Find us on Patreon, patreon.com slash soundwisepod and social media at soundwisepod. Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of Soundrise Podcast. Today we're talking about the band that you might have heard about, a very famous 70s act, Blue Oyster Cult. So Alexander, this is your pick. Tell us, first of all, how are you today and why did you choose BOC for your today's pick? Hello Vlada, nice introduction. I'm doing quite well and I'm really looking forward to this. You were absolutely right. I was the one who was behind this pick. So let me share some info about this band. So BOC was, um, they were founded in 1967 in the state of New York. And they have gone through a couple of lineup changes. Today we're going to talk about the, the most successful and the longest lasting lineup that consisted of Buck Dharma, Eric Bloom, the Bruchard brothers, Joe and Albert, those guys were in charge of the of the rhythm section, and Alan Lanier. So the initial lineup was a bit different, and the initial name was different as well. So this band also in the beginning had multiple names. They they couldn't quite decide which name they uh, they wanted. And one of the most noticeable names was Soft White Underbelly which was a reference to how Winston Churchill called Italy during the uh, World War II. He called them the soft white underbelly of the Axis powers. And one of the most important names when it comes to BOC's development was the rock critic Sandy Perlman. And uh, according to Sandy, uh, the band's current name, Blue Oyster Cult, referenced... Uh, a group of aliens, a group of aliens that uh, was meant to, I think, conquer Earth's history, something like that. There's something mystical, I think. And, and the band th- this band is quirky from the get-go, right? Yes, we'll see that in their uh, in their records. And the band wasn't initially happy with the name, but they kind of settled for it. And now, fifty plus years from from introducing that name, they are still Blue Oyster Cult. Okay, so this band is commonly associated with hard rock and also some other labels like heavy metal or progressive rock or a ton of other labels. As you guys know, the media and music fans like to label stuff. We will tell you and show you that this band is not easy to label. Though I have to say, Sandy Perlman, his intentions were to make an American, the American answer to Black Sabbath in Blue Oyster Cult. So he wanted this band to be the American version of Black Sabbath, which is quite interesting. And uh, interestingly enough, at some point in the 80s, BOC even hired one of uh, Black Sabbath's producers. I think he was called Martin Birch, I think, uh, who was also, yeah, Martin Birch, who was also famous for producing for other big bands uh, such as Deep Purple. This band has so far released 14 studio albums 
and the 14th album is set to go live in October this year so guys stay tuned for that we are today about to cover three of their most well-known albums two from the 70s when they reach their peak and one from the 80s so Vlada we have this tradition of often covering debut albums so that's where we want to start here the debut album called Blue Oyster Cult. So what were your thoughts about this album? Well, um, thanks for the nice intro. Just need to say one more thing about the, about your intro. Martin Birch, who worked with BOC, among other people, is probably one of the most revered hard rock producers, if not the most revered one in the history of rock music. He worked with the legends such as Deep Purple, Sabbath, Iron Maiden. So that also gives you an idea of how important this band was at a certain point and what their stature should be and that's one thing i'm not sure that this band is as well known and as respected as they deserve to be at least not in europe that's my that's my impression i feel like they never hit it really big in europe and they're still kind of a cultish band so to say but they were absolutely grand back in their heyday Uh, as you could sense from Alex's intro. So the debut record, hmm, what can I say? I immensely enjoyed this one. I think there's not a single bad tune. And what I really loved about it is that while this band is often classified as hard rock, in my opinion, they're extremely difficult to pigeonhole, especially on a record like this, where you can also hear a lot of experimentation uh, on, on songs such as Screams, for example, where I loved how they really, how they decided to take risks and take their sound to a whole different realm. Uh, but another thing that strikes me as great, something that might be missing from their later records, is how raw everything sounds. How you can sense that this is almost a garage rock band. And a garage rock band that has amazing chops at that. So that's kind of a, a an interesting thing. While the the guitar playing and the keyboard playing, for instance, is absolutely masterful here, but still the band will at times remind you of MC5, for example, just because the sound is so raw and and so visceral. Uh, what what do you think, Alexander? Is that your impression as well? Yes, the exact same impression, Vlad. MC5 was the first band that came to my mind when I started listening to this record. You know, instantly uh, recognizable. I have to praise the guitar work here, especially uh, the guitar solos. Uh, Also, this record is very consistent. You know, every track has something to offer. It's so good. It's so uh, energetic. Also, I want to point out something that I'm not sure that a lot of people think. The song, Cities on Flame with Rock and Roll, I kind of felt that that song reminded me of Black Sabbath's The Wizard. Right, Flada? Oh, that's interesting. I didn't think of that while listening to it, but when I give it another listen later on, I'll pay attention. What what specifically reminded you of The Wizard? Uh, the main riff, it's kind of similar to the Wizards' main riff, you know, that that famous riff with the harmonica. It's kind of similar, 
I, I'm not sure if you know th there's any connection there, but it, it was it was certainly interesting to to hear. And this is something that I thought about before even reading about uh, Sandy Perlman's intentions. So that's really interesting. Also, when it comes to this album, I really like the album artwork here, and it's interesting that BOC had a series of the so-called black and white albums, meaning that every artwork from their, I think, first three or four records all had only black and white. Three, yeah. yeah, the first three records were all exclusively in black and white. So, what do you think? What did you think about this album's artwork, Blada? Oh, I absolutely loved it too. I think it's very mysterious, and there's something about Blue Oyster Cult that I always appreciated, even when I wasn't very familiar with their music. When I knew only a couple of tracks, there's a certain kind of mystique about them. And even when you look at these uh, album covers, for example, this first one is kind of like um, uh, the, you you see the logo of the band in the distance, and you have some kind of 3D perspective, but it's all black and white. It's all kind of undefined and yet very, in some ways, the art is, is detailed, but abstract, you know. So I, I really like that. And blue, black and white, it kind, it's kind of uh, brave for the times, at least, even though at that time people were willing to experiment with album covers a lot. But it's quite brave to start off with a black and white cover in such a colorful world of a vinyl record. So yeah, absolutely love this artwork, especially uh, the first couple of records. I, I love their style there. But even yes. later on, when the artwork became more colorful, they always had some kind of enigmatic motifs. So that's another aspect of them that I really appreciate. Exactly, Vlada. My final comment about this album is that I feel that it is kind of tailored for live performances and especially live jam sessions and that's something that i feel when listening to the second track i'm on the land but i ain't no sheep but uh, oh yeah i love the, the way the album starts on a very energetic note those uh, first couple of tunes again that kind of garage rock atmosphere but still the band has the the, the typical mystique of the 70s hard rock but what they do differently from other let's say, hard rock bands, is that their sound seems to be defying the typical cliches of the time. And, and that's what I really appreciate about it. You can, you can listen to these tracks, and they all sound very fresh, very unique, even though it's a debut album. It seems like they uh, burst on the scene, fully realized. And um, again, the rawness of it all is what really gets to me especially like the ballad Then Came the Last Days of May, which is the third track. Uh, it sounds, you know, when you listen to it, it almost sounds as if the band was in the living room with you playing live. That's the kind of production they had on this record. Very clear, but sounds very much uh, unpolished, raw and live. And yet the band itself sounds very sophisticated, the way they play uh, the way the keyboards add to the overall texture, the guitar solos, extremely sophisticated. So I like I like that contrast that you find on this debut record. So my final verdict on this is 8.5, an excellent debut record, not a single bad track, 
And as I said, my favorite track is Then Came the Last Days of May. Nothing else to add here, Vlad. My rating is also deservedly 8.5, but the favorite track is a bit different. I'll go with Workshop of the Telescopes, mainly because of the guitar effect there, which is, I think, one of my favorite guitar effects ever. Okay, Vlada, so we're now moving on to 1976. The previous album was released in 1972. We're now sp- skipping a few records. And- a few excellent records. Yeah, that, that was the hard part here, to choose the records to talk about, right? Yes, they have so many good records in their arsenal. Now we're moving to Agents of Fortune, which features the mega hit in Don't Fear the Reaper. So, Vlada, what were your thoughts about this album and also the song, which is which can basically stand on its own? Yeah, I mean, uh, this is another one of those examples where a band might get slightly cursed by one of their songs because this song is so grand and so overplayed these days that basically a lot of people only know about this song when they think of Blue Oyster Cult. But what a great song it is. And uh, Don't Fear the Reaper, as the message of the song says, it's about death. And now there's been a lot of controversy about the song itself. A lot of people believe that it's about suicide, uh, about uh, basically calling somebody to commit a suicide, a a couple. Uh, There's a Romeo and Juliet comparison. He calls out to his love to come with him. Come on, baby, take my hand. Don't fear the reaper. Kind of very, a very chilling atmosphere, a very chilling message. However, it's also interesting to look at some other lyrics here. For example, at the beginning of the song, it says, Seasons don't fear the reaper, nor do the wind, the sun, or the rain. We can be like they are. So uh, Buck Dharma said that this song is not actually about committing suicide. It's more about not fearing death and about love that transcends flesh, that transcends the material. So in a sense, these things like seasons, wind, sun, or rain, these are timeless things. So he wanted to present his love or a a love that a person can have for another person as timeless. However, when I listened to it, I really had the feeling that it was about suicide. Not that that takes anything away from this great song. On the contrary, it it really gives you chills, especially in conjunction with those beautiful harmonies and and that soft guitar riff that uh, the main motive of this song. So beautifully executed. And did I mention the wonderful instrumental section in the middle? Just mind-blowingly good the solos this guy as a as a guitar player must be underrated because whenever people talk about the 70s hard rock guitar heroes you don't really hear this name of buck dharma placed in there very often so i think that's a huge injustice just listen to this track and it will all be very clear to you so alexander what's your opinion about the the infamous don't fear the reaper Fantastic song. I haven't heard it in years, but when I picked this album up and listened to it, I got goosebumps, believe it or not. I really like this song. Obviously, it's their most popular song, and it's, to be honest, it's totally 
deservedly that big. And when it comes to the suicidal reference, I, to be honest, this song has always been, has always sounded suicidal to me. And let's not forget the lyrics. 40,000 men and women every day like Romeo and Juliet. I think that is some kind of suicide reference. I think that uh, is some stats. It sounds like a to. clear reference to suicide. But I guess, you know, because of all the Puritans out there, that has become a controversial thing. God forbid if somebody sings about suicide or if an artist tries to look at, a, at suicide from a different perspective. Now, we all know that suicide is a horrible thing. It's absolutely something that should be uh, that there's a lot of people out there who need help. We need to be uh, there for them. So maybe singing about suicide uh, in a in a somewhat lightweight way is not that great. But I think the, the band probably had a different idea in mind. So I really appreciate the the effort there. Yes, rather exactly. Well, suicide is nowadays a big topic, you know. Some people talk about assisted suicide and all of that stuff, but that's another thing. So we are clearly blown away by the by this track, Blada. Now let's let's talk about the album. This album isn't that bad at all, uh, despite having this major song in it. I would definitely single out "Sinful Love," "Tenderloin," some other tracks. Uh, also, the the opening track, "This Ain't the Summer of Love." I feel like that is some kind of dig at the 60s scene, the hippie scene. For sure, yeah. And, and ba the band kind of reasserts its dark vibe, its dark image, you know. And uh, the way they carry this image is interesting because they don't necessarily always sound dark. This is a, kind of a contrast between light and darkness in, in here. And that's what I like about them. But this song is a great opener and maybe the only real hard rock tune on the record, right? Yeah, possibly. We can say that this album sounded a bit softer compared to the debut album that we talked about previously, which is not a bad thing. I mean, this, this band is still very good and especially the keyboards here are prominent and, and powerful, which will eventually grow uh, another level with the latter records. But that's not a bad thing, uh, of course, brother, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, for sure. And, you know, the thing about this record is that while most of the tracks are kind of overshadowed by Don't Fear the Reaper, there's so much going on here, so many neat ideas. Uh, for example, uh, the second track, True Confessions, has such a great soulful thing going. It almost reminds me of the way the Rolling Stones tackle R&B and souls. It really sounded a bit like that. Then you have the funky ETI, extraterrestrial intelligence. And then we have a nice little cameo here by none other than Patti Smith. So that's another interesting thing that Alan Lanier and Patti Smith dated around this time. And uh, she wrote some of the lyrics. You can hear her voice on the Revenge of Vera Gemini, and people say there's a rumor that it was Alan Lanier who kind of encouraged Patty to form her legendary Patty Smith group. And just around that time, their debut album, The Classic Horses, came out. So that's another interesting thing uh, how Blue Oyster Cult ha has certain connections to the New York punk scene as well. 
And, and that doesn't strike me as very odd, even though their main philosophy might be very different from that of those bands. But I think in, in their sound, there's a lot of rawness. Sometimes the, the, the vocals sound very real, very genuine, unpolished. And that's also another aspect of theirs that I really love. For example, here the track Tattoo Vampire has that punk thing going. W wouldn't you agree with that? Yes, absolutely. And let's not forget that uh, BOC are from New York, so no wonder that they were uh, associated with uh, New York's punk scene. What I also wanted to point out here is, obviously I said that I like uh, Sinful Love. What is special about that song and a couple of other songs on this record was the lead vocalist was Albert Bouchard. I think I, I got the surname wrong at the, uh, at the beginning of the episode. Apologize, guys. But Alan yeah, was... It's Bouchard Alan. Al and Alan Lanier, right? Yeah, Albert Bouchard uh, was the lead vocalist here. And not it's not all about the catchy chorus here. It's also about him as a vocalist. He was He tended to be the backing vocalist, but here he was the lead vocalist. And I thought that he did a marvelous job. Oh, yeah, and, and that's another plus for this band that uh, they really worked as a unit, you know, like everyone sings, not everyone, but several band members. And the songwriting seems to be uh, a joint effort as well. If you look at the credits here, you see, um, uh, for example, Joe Bouchard wrote some songs, then uh, Buck Dharma, you know, Eric Bloom, they all write these songs. They were all involved in the project. Yeah, yeah. Uh, even Sandy Perlman is credited to some songs like ETI. Uh, you see Patti Smith's uh, credit here, uh, which is another major recommendation. You know, if, if Patti Smith took this band seriously, I mean, who are you and I to dismiss them or anyone else? That, that's my take on that. Uh, not that her opinion sh should be that important. I mean, after all, she's just an individual, but still, she's Patty Smith, so she knows better. Anyway, <laughs> the final verdict on this album, what do you, Alex, think? Is it an Im improvement over the debut record? Uh, how does the band compare Ooh. to that early stage? What What do you say? Well, as I said, it, it, they went a bit softer here. Uh, not a bad thing. They made a huge, huge song in Don't Fear the Reaper. They also featured Patty, Patty Smith. And guys, bear in mind, we just talked about how all of the band members were involved in songwriting and, and everything. But don't forget that they also hired a lot of other lyricists, among them Patty Smith, who co-writes one of the one of their songs? But also... I, I just wouldn't use the word hired. I think they were just friends with these people. I mean, Patty Smith dated Alan, and then you have Michael Murcock, the legendary sci-fi yeah, yeah. uh, fantasy writer, too, right? So I think this band just uh, was very collaborative. Like they worked in a very collaborative spirit, which attracted others too. Well, they were in a, in a big city, obviously. So. It was it was kind of expected, so to say, but I, 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 I'm pretty sure that this band's quality stood out in, in many people's eyes. Okay, so back to the ratings and my final verdict. So, oh, I'm not sure if this was an improvement over uh, the debut album, 
The rating is kind of similar, maybe slightly lower, so I'll give it an 8 out of 10, and oof, it would be unfair to pick to pick any other standout track than Don't Fear the Reaper, Blada. Um, I also have a hard time uh, rating this one. It's really good. like It's also very consistent throughout, but just due to the fact that Don't Fear the Reaper really overshadows other songs, and you know, if you if you look at other classic records, usually there's a few tracks that are kind of even, that are all mesmerizing. Not saying that these are not great tracks, but if you have one huge standout like that, then it may not be a 9 or 10, but 8 is a perfect grade, I think. And it, again, just like the first record, it's consistent throughout. And I have to say, it's been a while since I enjoyed listening to one of the bands for our episode so much being basically attracted to every single track well fugazi was kind of like that too to be fair but it's just amazing like you can't find a really bad spot some people may say that some things might be a bit cheesy but i just don't i just don't see it here i think uh, the consistency is the key here so yeah eight and, of course, the best track, Don't Fear the Reaper. Good stuff, Lada. Okay, so now moving on to the 80s. And now we are talking about the uh, previously mentioned Michael Moorcock and also the famous animated film Heavy Metal. Lada, were you surprised that this album provided some songs for that film? Yeah, and that's really interesting that you mentioned that because... Heavy Metal is how I really fell in love with POC because I knew Don't Feel the Reaper, but I, I thought when I was younger, I thought they might have been one of those one-hit bands, you know, that they didn't really have much substance other than that one song. And then I, I watched Like Heavy most bands nowadays. <laughs> no, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't say that, but that's a whole different Oops. topic now. It's like, let's not open that can of worms. Uh, but, you know, what's really fascinating is I watched this beautiful animated film. I think, in my, in my opinion, it's one of the best animated films ever made. It's sci-fi, but done in that very quirky, uh, outlandish way, very original, not really following sci-fi tropes, but, but creating new worlds and, and new ideas, possibilities. It was inspired by the French comic book magazine heavy metal by the same name uh metal herlon or uh, in in french at least that's how i think it's pronounced probably pronounced differently <laughs> so that's just fantastic and i just remember watching the film and the song just hit me and it was the veteran of psychic wars by boc and that's where i really started digging into their catalog. And of course, the first record that I really listened to was Fire of Unknown Origin. And just, just a great record overall and a great track. It's interesting that they were also commissioned to write a song for the film. And it was another song that you can find here, Vengeance the Pact. However, this song, the lyrical content, describes what happens in the film, in one of the vignettes of the film, because this is a collection of short stories, vignettes. It describes it in such great detail that the director didn't like that. It's kind of like a spoiler, you know. So he decided to take 
veteran of the psychic wars, instead the song co-written by the uh, aforementioned Michael Murcock of uh, of Elric fame. Those of you reading fantasy know about Elric, his famous character. And this song just worked perfectly in the film. Uh, there's another song here, Heavy Metal, The Black and Silver. I think that, that one might have been related to the film as well. But Alexander, tell me, how would you compare? Now the band is deep into their career. It's the 80s. The times have changed. So what do you think about they this one? Obviously, yeah, yeah, yeah. They obviously had much more experience uh, at that point. So... Yes, this was released in 1981, and it is pretty much an 80s album in the sense of the keyboards being really, really uh, featured here. The sound is softer. It it has some similarities with... But is it softer? I don't know. I don't feel that this is softer than Agents of Fortune, for example. Well, it's slightly softer than Agents of Fortune, but compared to the debut album, it's definitely something different. And I think they, they did it well but i didn't quite enjoy it as as much as the previous two albums have to say yes we do have some great tracks here like for example burning for you and joe and crawford interestingly enough the first track that i ever heard from this album was soul survivor a couple of years ago but for some reason i just didn't pick the album up i don't know why i also have to say and now i might disappoint some listeners but as a, as someone who is not into these sci-fi things, that's that's something that it's kind of, I don't know, maybe it's hard to say, but that's the negative part of this album and this artwork, I would say. Uh, big no. Big, just, this is a total blasphemy. Total blasphemy. First of all, I mean, what kind of person doesn't like fantasy and sci-fi? Boring. It's boring. No, it's not boring. How can imagination be boring? How can creating worlds, how can creating characters, rich and and multi-layered characters be boring? You know, and and painting. It's like painting new worlds. You know, like... I'm yawning at the moment. No, I mean, uh, our dear friend Alexander needs to get better acquainted with certain literature. But that's a whole different topic here. Now, what I really like about this is the whole sci-fi fantasy vibe from the art cover, which when you look at it, it immediately makes you want to get this record if you're a huge fantasy sci-fi fan. Uh, it's so in line with uh, Heavy Metal, the film, uh, that, that art cover. It just beautifully executed. Uh, it, shows a, uh, it shows a cult, yeah? I guess this is the depiction of Blue Oyster Cult, I would say. Because what you have is uh, a number of hooded individuals with one of them at the helm. Uh, They're all wearing blue and they're holding oysters. So, yeah, this is the depiction of the literal blue oyster cult. And who wouldn't want to get into this record after seeing this image? Just go to Google, look it up, okay? Blue oyster cult, fire of unknown origin, look it up. So, yeah, and then the songs here. What I like about this record is how the band managed to incorporate this radio-friendly sound, almost AOR sound in a way, and yet retain its sense of mystique and uh, its sense of, its sense of uh, adventure that kind of followed other records as well. 
as for the highlights, the uh, aforementioned veteran of the Psychic Wars, but also burning for you a major track of this one. That uh, if, if we're talking radio friendly, this is definitely radio friendly. At the same time, it's such an excellent track with its iconic intro. It's it's one of those pieces of music when you hear, they're immediately etched into your brain, and they sound like uh, uh, something that everyone knows. You know, like. A kind of like smoke on the water, that kind of feel. And uh, I just love it when I'm somewhere random and this song comes on. Uh, I think I was once somewhere in Croatia and this just came on. I was so excited. So it's another one of major hits for the band, for the band and, and rightfully so. Soul Survivor, great track. Again, a, a fantasy setting, the last person on the earth. A very, very interesting, a very interesting and uh, often exploited idea in sci-fi and here in Soul Survivor as well. Perfectly executed. John Crawford is another highlight for me. A great track. Has a bit of that punk atmosphere, I would say. Not that the song itself is punk, but the whole attitude is very punkish. So another great record. Another consistent record without a bad track. Everything works here. The band sounds more polished. The the keyboards are more prominent, adding even more atmosphere than usual. Uh, this is not the raw Blue Oyster cult of their first couple of records, but they really evolved nicely. And uh, this might be one of the highlights of their career. So, Alexander, any final words? Yes, uh, I had my little round of winding you up, and I have to say that I have another thing that I would like to use for the for the same purpose. To be honest, uh, we have covered one AOR band before on the show, and that band is obviously associated with hard rock, and even you talked about uh, their ability to incorporate uh, proper hard rock riffs. Uh, obviously, I'm talking about Survivor. If just we were stop, to compare just the stop, two, okay, please. If we were to compare the two within this hard rock category, just, I just think please. Sur- Survivor is not even near Dear listeners, BOC. The, uh, this is a comedy segment of our show where Alexander entertains you with his crazy, uh, far-fetched ideas. No, <laughs> uh, Survivor and BOC should never be uttered in the same sentence. So I apologize to the gods of rock and to metal gods, uh, to Rob Halford personally, for just uttering these two bands in the same sentence. So no, this is absolutely, a BOC is just uh, on a whole different level. This is a band that uh, is so amazingly consistent and, and just so original, so unique in their sound, defying classification, defying categorization. Let's just not put them in the same sentence with Survivor. We talked about Survivor. We mentioned their positives and negatives. Let's leave that in the past. So let's just leave it at that. Fair enough, Flora. Okay, before we give our final verdicts, uh, what do you think of the fact that Martin Birch produced this album? Did you notice it? Oh, yeah, of course. That's why it sounds so polished. Compare this to his Maiden production around the same time. That's it. That's the sound. You know, like this very nice, clean sound of drums and bass and everything just works perfectly together. Martin, unfortunately, passed away not long ago, so we can use this as a chance to remember him and his contribution to rock music. 
he did some amazing things, especially with Deep Purple and then later on with Iron Maiden uh, and many, many other great acts, Blue Oyster Cult included. So thank you, Martin, and rest in peace. Fair enough, Lada. Okay, so my rating for this album is 7 out of 10, and my favorite track is uh, Joanne Crawford. Back to you, Lada. All right, that's a great cut. Um, I will say, for me, this is 8.5, a great, great record. Maybe, I'm not sure if this is the best starting point, but I think it worked for me. Uh, it really depends what kind of sound you lean towards. If you like things more raw, more uh, hard rock, garage rock, then go with the early records. If you like more polished stuff, uh, more atmosphere keyboards, then maybe start off with this record. But a great record, 8.5 for me, the highlight uh, veteran of the Psychic Wars. That's the song that made me uh, notice this band. So I cannot go with any other tune, even though I, I really appreciate other tracks here especially Burning For You with its amazing chorus and amazing intro, just out of this world. Yeah, Burning For You was amazing. Okay, so guys, as you see, we are quite excited about this band. We, we genuinely like them, and we feel kind of bad because we skipped some of their famous albums. So that just means that this band has a lot to offer. Look out for the upcoming album that's, that is scheduled to be released in October this year. So that will be interesting for all, for all, the, uh, all the hard rock fans out there. Uh, Vlada, any final words? Well, okay, one thing I have to say that I feel BOC has been done some injustice, that they should be more talked about. The individual members should get more accolades, especially uh, Buck Dharma. That guy is out of this world with his solos. They're so refined, sophisticated. It's like he knows exactly what to play and what not to play. And just can't praise them enough. Uh, another thing that's worth mentioning is that BOC is returning this year with another record, the first one in 19 years. So the band has been active all along. They've been touring. Uh, I think right now they have two original members, which is pretty good at this point of their career, having two original members. 50 plus years. Yeah, it's pretty uh, pretty impressive. And some of the new tracks are already out. So go, go to the streaming services, take a listen. And interestingly enough, they actually sound more hard-rocking and more heavy now than back in the 70s, so that's another thing. So take a listen, and we're very excited about the new album that's about to drop in October. So uh, a great thing to know that a lot of these acts are still out there, and uh, especially great knowing that BOC still has two key members in the lineup. Uh, Buck Dharma and uh, Eric Bloom. Uh, so Eric Bloom, right? Yeah. So that's a huge recommendation. I, I can hardly wait to to hear the whole thing. Fantastic. Okay, dear listeners, thanks again for tuning in. Go check out BOC and give us some feedback. We always welcome any kind of feedback, comments. Uh, you can also engage with our social media posts. Um, our handle on social media is SoundRisePod. Uh, also, if you would like to support this show, you can join the Patreon community 
and support us for as little as one dollar per month that would mean a lot to us so go check that out patreon.com slash sunraysepod now we're giving the mic over to our friends at Day. bye bye write a review and then you can share it with the world in any social media platform and then your friends see it and you can share and discover new shows together this is steph instigator of pod rev day podcast review day and i'm andy from inspired money and i'm arielle of earbuds podcast collective and Castbox. we're here to tell you everything you need to know about pod rev day which is on the eighth of every month of every year of every century of every you get it we are posting podcast reviews as part of hashtag pod rev day podcast review day because podcasters work their butts off and deserve to know how much they've impacted your lives and you can do that through reviews even one star feels surprisingly <laughs> good Does it? it lets you know that people are at least listening don't be a passive podcast listener write a review and tell your favorite creator what you love about their podcast or about a specific episode and to participate you just need to do one review and we'll see you every eighth of the month pod rev day because podcasters deserve to hear it hashtag pod rev day p-o-d-r-e-v-d-a-y